Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres. And you can play them on just about any gadget that you might have, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get some old childhood favorites like The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, or What About Animal Farm by George Orwell, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the show. It helps the program. I get a few bucks. It's a good thing. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. Welcome back to the program. This is Other People. This is it. This is the show. It's nice to have you here. It's nice to uh, be inside of your head. Just think about that for a moment. I am now entering your brain right now. Right now. Right now. I'm invading your gray matter, which is uh, sort of odd to contemplate. I'm in there somewhere. My guest today is Vanessa Veselka. How's that for a name? Vanessa Veselka. Uh, that's a really good name, in my opinion. I think it's a well-considered name, and I think that whoever gave that name has good taste in names and put some good thought into it. Uh, it's one of those names that kind of rolls off the tongue. Vanessa Veselka. Uh, I believe that's alliteration. And uh, it's the kind of name where I think it automatically confers a certain legitimacy on whatever she does. You know? It's like it's like someone says, who did this? Who made this sandwich? Uh, and someone else says, Vanessa Veselka made that sandwich. I would automatically take that sandwich more seriously. And uh, it would probably taste better uh, to me as a result. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do pay a, a lot of attention to names, which I think I've mentioned on this program before. And I probably put too much stock in it. 
but regardless, I'm a believer that uh, the phonetics of what a person is called, uh, the phonetics do matter. And uh, I sometimes worry about my own particular phonetics, uh, which I've gone over before. So anyway, uh, Vanessa Veselka is my guest, which will hopefully confer some legitimacy on this program. She's the author of the critically acclaimed novel Zazen, or uh, is it is it pronounced Zazen? Uh, now available from Red Lemonade, the publishing imprint helmed by the great Richard Nash, the impresario Richard Nash, the mastermind. Uh, he's sort of like the Wizard of Oz of indie publishing uh, to me. So Vanessa and I, we're going to talk at length in just a moment about all kinds of things, including Zazen. And uh, speaking of Zazen, uh, you know, the novel obviously is its own creation. Uh, but I should mention that the word Zazen means meditation. It's a form of Zen meditation. Uh, as I understand it, and I, and I should say that I don't understand it all that well. Uh, and I think it just means sitting quietly in the cross-legged seated position and uh, more or less focusing on one's breathing, uh, which is also something I've kind of touched on before on this program. Uh, I'm generally a fan of meditation, you know, if not in practice, then in concept. And I should emphasize that I'm a fan with uh, with no real religious context. You know, like I, I understand that it's a Buddhist thing, but uh, the Buddhism isn't incredibly important to me. I'm not a huge organized religion fan. But I do like the idea, uh, you know, of sitting down and being completely still and quiet every day. You know, I think there's something to that. And uh, I don't do it nearly enough. And I don't think human beings do it nearly enough. And uh, on the level of common sense, for me, it just seems logical when I look around and when I look at my computer screen and when I look at my television and when I listen to my brain... Uh, just the incessant chatter and static of my brain. It just seems obvious to me that we should all uh, just sit down and, and shut up uh, regularly, you know? Like, like, what if we just did that for, for an hour a day? You know, what would that produce? I wonder about that. Uh, I wonder, uh, you know, if, like, instead of the Republican debates, what if the candidates just sat on a stage together, Indian style, and said nothing for an entire hour? Just like Republican Zazen. <laughs> what would that do? Uh, I don't know. I think Newt Gingrich would start crying. And uh, and speaking of names and phonetics of names, you know, like here's a perfect example of what I'm saying. Like Newt Gingrich. Like you hear that name and you just know automatically that the guy uh, has issues. You know, he's a Grinch. He's a Newt. I don't know what it is, but. Uh, I, I can guarantee you that something is fucked up there. I just know it. Uh, and I really do think that he would cry if he just had to sit still and uh, practice Zazen for an hour. I think he would weep. That's just a guess. Uh, or else he would melt. You know, it would be like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And his wife, too. Like, she would melt uh, in her seat in the front row. Just, like, spontaneously combust. And, <laughs> and all that would be left of her would be her blonde hair helmet. I would just be sitting there in a smoking puddle. Uh, I don't even know what that thing is. Is that a wig? So uh, anyway, the point I guess that I'm driving at is that I think silence is very interesting and underrated as a human experience. And uh, I'll even go out on a limb and say that silence uh, is the voice of God. And I don't even believe in God. You know, not not in a, like a paternal sky God or an uh, omniscient totalitarian scorekeeping God. I'm not into that. I'm just talking about the great unknown, generally, uh, whatever it is beyond the scope of human understanding, uh, the force or the cosmic binder 
or the overhead projector or whatever you call it. I have no idea. But uh, the point is that if you ever experience real, actual silence, and, and silence in nature especially, like if you're out in the desert uh, on a vision quest, uh, I think there's something to that. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, especially if you're an urban dweller, how often do we experience real, honest-to-God, total silence? So uh, let's try some real, honest-to-God, total silence right now. Uh, you and me, uh, let's see if we can hear the voice of God together right now in unison. Okay, here goes. One, two, three. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry about that, folks. That's uh, that's terribly immature. That's a sound effect. I couldn't resist. I, uh, I just downloaded it. And uh, here it is again. And uh, one more time. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, for, for anybody out there who uh, shares my maturity level, hopefully that was entertaining. Uh, how did you enjoy the silence? That's that's the, uh, the bigger question. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Do you feel better? Uh, that's another question. I, I think I feel a little better. Uh, I'm not sure if I heard the voice of God, and, and I should admit that I feel a little weird too, uh, having been quiet like that, you know, on the air uh, with you. But uh, strangely, I also feel a little bit closer to you. Uh, I believe we've shared something here, something intimate and something sacred. And uh, yeah, so I don't know what else to say uh, when it comes to Zazen and the whole Zazen thing and the whole Eastern religion thing in the West and the whole yoga thing. Uh, the whole, like, you know, let's go see the Dalai Lama speak at Madison Square Garden type thing. Uh, but you know what I find about a lot of people who are really into that stuff? Uh, my one big complaint is that they, they often hold eye contact for way too long. I think that's my, that's my biggest beef. Uh, I can live with the rest of it. I can live with the, uh, with the beads and the accessorizing and so on. And, and, uh, and, and I do, you know, I do, uh, admit that it's a good thing to be aware and connected to the present moment and, and all that stuff. But I just feel like sometimes the eye contact uh, is just too much. You got to ratchet it down. You know, you got to blink a little bit. It's freaking me out. You know, it's like if your head were an automobile, it's like you have your brights on. You know what I mean? It's just too intense and uh, I have a hard time with it. But I do wish for more Zazen in the world generally and uh, I've had for a long time this recurring fantasy for a new holiday uh, in America. I used to refer to it as Lawn Day. Uh, I had this dream of a day where everyone in America would just go outside and sit in their lawns and do absolutely nothing and say absolutely nothing for an entire day. Just everybody sitting and blinking and staring at one another quietly in their lawns. You know, Lawn Day or do nothing day, or sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up day. You know what I mean? You think that's a good idea? Can you hear me? I'm serious. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, 
and The Occasional Triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But, you know, my first job that I walked off the street and got when I was, you know, I don't know, late teenager years ago, uh, my first sort of straight job, I should say. Your first, um, your first you know, sort of what job? Your first sort of straight, straight job? job? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I worked as a stripper when I was 15. I'm not counting that. Um, <laughs> You know, but when I was, uh, my first straight job was, you know, one of them. Uh, and I bartended when I was underage, and I'm not counting that either for these purposes. So, straight job, going back to it. Um, you know, I got some job calling, uh, calling, doing phone calls about surveys, you know, some of these mindless kind of jobs. Uh, and, and it paid me $10 an hour. And that was back in 1990. And my roommate to this day, really talented artist, really amazing person, works what we would have called a middle, you know, like middle or lower management, you know, super, you know, kind of job um, 20 years ago. He's been at the same place for years and years. You know, the guy makes $11 an hour and, and he'll never make more. Um, you know, people who make $10 an hour, if they complain about it, are frequently told, just shut up and be glad you have a job, you know? Right. But the interesting thing is it's a, uh, it was the same number 10 years ago. I wonder what it is about the number 10 that's so fascinated the American public. <laughs> He's like, well, 10 seems to be a good place to stop, you know, because, I mean, literally $10 an hour, 1984, data entry, $10 an hour, you know, $10 or, or 1985, $10 an hour, 1990, survey calls, no skills, fill in the blanks, $10 an hour, you know. Now, you're supposed to, like, manage an entire section of a small tile company <laughs> for $10 an hour. Wow. I mean, yeah. it's a very... Yeah. And that, that's I'm higher than minimum on. wage. I mean, right? That's yeah. like, that's like yeah. better than, that's like, like percentage wise, it's significantly better than minimum wage. And like, I just never understood that. Like, how does anybody yeah. live on minimum wage? It's, it's a complete... Well, they can't. There's a, and that's where I think at one point people try to make the you know, they try to sort of say, look, there's minimum wage and there's living wage. What's a living wage? Let's start calculating that. Well, when they started calculating that in Seattle about the time that I was at Amazon, um, I remember the calculations at that time for a living wage. And what they figured as a living wage was you live on your own in a no-frills, you know, studio or one-bedroom. Um, you know, you have basic medical, like the most basic emergency medical and there was no savings or anything. It was just covering, you know, how you get from point A to point B. Uh, and it came out to $17 an hour. Yeah. And that was in 1990. You know, and what's happened is people talk about, you know, people talk about debt expansion, they talk about anything. But, like, it's just, I mean, Amazon's model, you know, was, you know, we don't, we don't, the way that it used to be that if you were with a company, you know, you were expected to sort of have that company treat you well over the years or the company loyalty and people talk all about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the company loyalty model has been gone for a long time. But what's weird is what's replaced it, which is 
stock loyalty. So you're in it for the company. You know, you're in it. If you're in early, you're in it and you have stock. Your, what you get out of the company instead of wages is going to be stock. So it creates even this worker incentive to not pay themselves to up the stock. You know, I mean, it's a kind of insane. It's almost like Brazil, you know, it's just like there's an absurdity to the experience of it. And, and that was one of the things I really was trying to and possibly failed to do, but I was trying to bring into the Amazon piece was also just the absurdity of it, you know, of like, where the hell are you going to put the communion dresses? You know, right, right. Does anybody talk to anybody about this? Well, no. I mean, that's one of the things that was so fascinating about it because, like, you know, I mean, I buy stuff on Amazon. I mean, I do, you know, and it's it's kind of hard to avoid right. it, especially in book world. And um, you know, it's like it's 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 complicated. I think it's a complicated issue. I think especially for people in publishing because, um, yep. you know, it's it's unavoidable. It's very, you know, it's it's got a huge amount of influence or an increasing amount of influence in the book world. Uh, but uh, you know, just that aside, as a general consumer, I've always been just fascinated by how it works. Like, what? How does this even right, happen? Like, wh- where is all this stuff coming from? Like, you know what I'm saying? How do they do this? And so, just getting a window into the actual, uh, you know, interior of the company was was interesting. Good. Yeah, I'm my- glad. I, and I, I just feel like there's so many more people who are more expert at it, <laughs> you know, than I was or am. And so that was another reason I didn't write the article for years was just wanting to see other people kind of maybe share their experiences on it. But then I, I just ended up in something that I really, really wanted to just tell the story of because it was such a specific moment in time. And and I wanted to, you know, and I got to thank the Atlantic. I turned in this thing, which I never do. You know, I'm a nerd about deadlines. I turned this thing in very late because of some family situations. They were totally sweet to me. Not only did I turn it in late, I turned it in over twice the size I said I was going to turn it in. Another thing I never do. They got this 4,800-word behemoth late, given to them. And I just got to say, you know, there were lines in there where I was writing, you know, the German philosopher Krakauer. I'm like, well, hell, you should just have a dotted line that says cut here. Like, why am I even sending this in? Right. And, you know... They they worked with the first two paragraphs to sort of tie it to the port shut down that day a little more succinctly. Other than that, they left the thing alone. They didn't touch a single thing. Wow. They let the whole thing go. And so that was great, too. Uh, oh, wait, and did, to, it, go, to did it go of, into the print edition and online or just online? Or? No, no, just online. I wish it had gone in the print because <laughs> two reasons. One is money. Um, the When I pitched the story to them, the print – I initially pitched the story. There was a big book on Jeff Bezos that came out um, in October called One Click Jeff Bezos and the Rise of Amazon. And uh, it's a Valentine to Bezos. <laughs> I mean, a complete Valentine to him. And I uh, I had a galley and um, I, I read it and double checked my research with his and, you know, stuff like that. So when I pitched it, I pitched it initially to be sort of a companion piece like, hey, this book's coming out, there's going to be talk. This is kind of a view from below, you know. Um, but then when uh, the Occupy Wall Street stuff came up and the port shutdowns, I sort of made the case to them that the um, – so, the, okay, I'm not being very succinct. I'm sorry. The paper side of it said this is too – you know, we're, we're not going to make this deadline. So this will have to go to online. Yeah, but still, Online loved it. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, it's like in, in, online you have a little bit more room. It's not like you're, you're – You have uh, more room. Like word count doesn't matter quite as much. You right. Know? Right, but the pay skills radically different. <laughs> so, yeah. Know, 
Um, I mean, radically. Um, so, but they were great to me, and I really appreciate it. And, and you know, you had said that it's really kind of blown up, and I don't even know what, where, how much it really has, but it, it definitely, because I, like I said, I put my head in the sand a little bit about stuff like this, but it definitely seems to be getting sent around quite a bit. And you just did, and you just did like a traditional pitch, like you're like, hey, I'm going to write this, and you just wrote them a query letter, and they accepted it. I wrote them a query letter, and then had the first two paragraphs or three paragraphs of the piece. When I do query letters, I tend to put the first few paragraphs of the piece in mm-hmm. because um, I found a lot of times that the things I actually like to write about are harder to query than they are to write about. Uh, like, I, I have to kind of prove I can do it. Well, yeah, query letters, you know? are, pa- query letters are, a, they're a pain in the ass to write, I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they really are. And and I think that sometimes when I try to say, well, I really want to talk about the nature of religion at its essence, like, <laughs> just like throw it on the pile. But if I can give them three paragraphs of a lead for something, that they can see how I would start to set the tone on it, and they get it drawn in, then it seems to make it more believable. That's what I'm hoping anyway. I've got several pieces I'm about to pitch. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. And uh, you know, there's there's so much to talk about because you know there's that, and then there's uh, Zazen. Am I pronouncing that right? Is it Zazen or is yes, it just, you are. It's just Zazen. You can say you can say Zazen, Zazen, or Zazen. All of those work. They're all, all true. They, they all work. Okay, so what you uh, can't say is what my publisher occasionally says, which is Zazen. Zazen. <laughs> um, so. so uh, Let's start. I guess I mean you've you've lived an interesting life. I'm reading your bio, and uh, you've done a lot of different things. And you you mentioned earlier that you were uh, you know bartending when you were underage. You were a stripper at age 15. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like, how, how did that happen? You were. It says you were a, a run teenage runaway. Like, like, can you take us back to your childhood? Like, where are you from? Oh, I moved around a lot, and and what I would also add is that, um, you know. It's in my bio. I think it's easy to pick out um, that you know the, the things like you know stripping and being a teenage runaway and things like that. That's one side of the spectrum. I've also experienced great privilege and and eaten in five star restaurants and traveled around. You know what I mean? So yeah. for me, there's a real range of experience, and uh, so it wouldn't be fair for me to say any of what I'm about to say without putting it in that context too. Well, sure. Let's um, let's talk about it all. I mean, like just just start yeah. kind of at the beginning. Like where where are you from? At the beginning, uh, I was born in Texas. Um, my my parents are both Texans, uh, and my you know not to be too reductionist, my mother was a, a journalist um, who ended up going into television journalism. And my father was a very impassioned uh, political person. He worked for Model Cities, in, um, which was part of the LBJ War on Poverty. And, uh, you know, he became more and more radicalized through his experience in America, in this country, with capitalism. He's a, you know, pretty straight-out communist. Um, and my mom uh, became very, very successful in her field, and uh, in in radio and then in television. Well, how so? How so? Like, was she, like, would we, where would we have read her well, or heard her? Her name is Linda Ellerby, and she is a reporter who uh, Murphy Brown was based on her. Oh, okay. um, she's won a ton of Emmys. If you were 10 years older, you would know exactly who I was talking about. She was one of the first women in national television. Um, well, no, that rings a bell. The know. name rings a bell. You know, like, yeah. I, I just. I mean, she's. 
She was played by Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus on Saturday Night Live when I was a kid. Used to do her on the show. Um, so she was very, very big in the 80s in television and uh, in the 70s. She covered Capitol Hill. She, you know, she had a nightly news show that was on after David Letterman every night, uh, national television. And, yeah, so she was very successful in, um, in her field. And I grew up, uh, they separated pretty early. <laughs> so I grew up um, moving around with her as she moved to different affiliates. And then, uh, so I lived in Alaska. I lived in D.C. I lived in New Jersey. I lived in Houston again. Um, I moved around quite a bit. And then I ended up in New York and grew up mostly in Greenwich Village from about the time I was in fourth grade uh, until my first year of high school. I, I got... I, I, Things were kind of rough. I was already had a very uh, volatile relationship with school and home. And uh, I went to a boarding school for about five minutes and was expelled. Why? And uh, I was expelled for absences, um, I think. Uh, yeah, I think. I could have been expelled for a lot of things they didn't catch me for. I was expelled because I was a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> but I was expelled for absences, technically, um, but also, it seems to be that there was this particular arrangement cut that they thought I was going to kill myself, and that this was a school that had a very, very high rate of suicides before. And what was the school? Really what was the school? North, it was called Northfield Mount Hermon. Okay. And really, really didn't want another suicide on campus. Um, I was doing really bad. Ba- yeah, I was doing really crazy dramatic behavior that would have led any sane person to think, maybe she'll kill herself, you know what I mean? But to me, from where I was, I wasn't suicidal. I was just, you know, I was just uh, busy. You were, you were, you were <laughs> homicidal? <laughs> That's okay. I, I don't know. I would, I, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I drank a lot. I did a lot of drugs and I had a lot of self-hatred and I had a lot of confusion. And, you know, that made me like, makes me like a lot of people, you know? Sure. Um, I was cutting myself. I was, you know, I was just, I was standing in the middle of freeways, you know. I mean, I wasn't doing things that made you think this is a stable person. And particularly if you're a political organization, you know, at some point you go, wait a minute, is this our problem? And you go, no, it's not our problem. Um, so, you know, uh, the only reason that came into it is that I was officially allowed to withdraw as opposed to get kicked out if I would go do mental testing at a place called the Cambridge Institute. Um so then I went and did a bunch of, you know, days of MMPIs and Rorschach tests. What, what was the first thing? What was the first thing? The MM- MMPIs? Yeah, what is that? Uh, multiple, what is it, Myers? It, it's not Myers-Briggs. I'm going to get this all wrong. It's the big 500-question test for personality assessment. Okay. Um, they, uh, I can tell you come from a better world than I do. I took, um, I took the Myers-Briggs. I mean, you know. <laughs> maybe it is the Myers-Briggs. I'm an, uh, I think I'm an INFJ or something, you know. Right. Yeah, I think it's some, well, there's a couple of different versions of that, I think. There's the big one, and then there's like mini versions. Uh-huh. And the big one is just like the mini ones, only it's endless. And they ask you the same question over and over to see where you break. And they follow your breaking pattern as sort of part of your, like to see where your consistencies fail. Yeah. Um, and they, that becomes part of their sort of deluxe version of personality assessment. So I think it was like that. Anyway, I took a lot of those tests. 
And how, and then, how old were you then? Like, what was this like? 15. What? 15, okay. 15. And uh, things had just really uh, gone to seed by then. So I ended up leaving home and uh, hitchhiked down to New Orleans first. Wow. And, uh, you know, and the thing was, when I was 15, I, looked, I was passing from my early 20s. I had a low voice. I was uh, very developed. I carry. I was used to being around adults more than children, more than kids my own age. I actually didn't relate very well to kids my own age. Um, and so, you know, I remember when I was in New Orleans, I got called into this one place, and the scary, freaky woman on the bar said she was letting me go. She said Vice was following me, and I remember her saying, "What is it? Why are they following you?" And they just assumed it was crack or something. And I remember looking at him and going, God, it's never once occurred to you that I'm underage. So I know that I really passed very, very convincingly. Because at that moment, there are people who will hire you underage easily in that industry, in New Orleans or anywhere else. But the fact that that they knew vices after me and they never asked me, how old are you? You know, and they were asking me every other question. Wow, that was the furthest thing from their mind. So I passed quite a bit, you know? Okay, okay. so let me ask you a question. This might be like sort of a naive, goofy question, but like you're 15 years old and you go to New Orleans and you get a job. Is that where you got your first stripping job? Is that correct? Yeah. Did somebody teach you how to do it? You know, that's not a naive question. It was (laughs) a very smart one, and I haven't been asked, but it's actually kind of a funny story. I wish there were classes. Um, I was in disaster. I remember the first place I went to was this place, I think it was called French Casino, maybe. That sounds about right. Yeah, and I remember walking in, and it it was just dismal, you know, uh, dismal time of the year, uh, dismal situation to be in. And there was this, they had these, there was a woman on stage and she was doing a number and there were very few biological women working those clubs or it seemed like about half and half. Um, and so I remember, you know, the guy said, okay, you know, you're on at 15, go show us what to do. And I just thought, I have no idea what to do. And it was a place where you actually put your own coins in to the, I mean, you could like plug the jukebox for what you want to dance to. So I ran in the back, and I was just like, oh, does anybody have any costume? I mean, I didn't have a costume. I didn't have anything. And there was some, like, I think it was a joke. There was some, like, it must have been some kind of more burlesque-style show or something that had happened at one point. Somebody said, well, go in there. I grabbed this thing that's like, I mean, I kid you not, this is like some kind of, like, bad, kitschy, you know, 1800s hooker kind of outfit, right, with eye hooks all up and down the back. And... And like this woman who who was actually you know she was actually a queen, but she um, she got me in that thing and, I, and 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 hooked me all up. And I went out and I put the money in. And I didn't think what's sexy to dance to. I thought, man, I wonder if there's anything that doesn't suck on the jukebox. <laughs> so I put the money in and I play. They have Nebraska, the album Nebraska. I'm like, I love Nebraska. In fact, I'm in the mood for it. <laughs> so I put in like Badlands and like this is the Bruce the Bruce Springsteen and... album, Badlands. Yes, it's like yes. for yeah, people dark. for people for people who are listening. It's like this is like Bruce Springsteen with like an acoustic guitar. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, dark, howling, train sounds, and yeah. misery, and stories of people's deaths yeah. and hopelessness. I mean, this is. And, you know, I remember I went in, put in uh, Johnny 99, I think, was one of the things I played, and, you know, and the song Nebraska. So then I jump on stage, and it's this, like, howling four-track of this, you know, completely gutted, despairing sound. And I'm in this, like, insane 
insane dress that I now can't get out of because, of course, the eye hooks are in the back, <laughs> which I think the drag queen knew. I think that was part of what was so funny about it to her. Um, I was like, okay, now I don't know what to do, you know? And I'm trying to, like, kind of dance. <laughs> you know, and then the thing is, you figure it out. You know, I, I, you know, I figured out that moment. Um, you know, I had to, I had to ask, um, I had to ask the guys uh, at the bar to, to uh, unhook the eye hooks. You know, it worked great. Um, so, you know, it, nobody does teach you, <laughs> you know, how to do it. Some people may be more talented in that area than no, I mean, I mean, not that I've been in, I haven't been in a ton of strip clubs, but like I have been in some. And like sometimes you're watching these girls on the, on the pole and you're like, this isn't easy. Like you have to be, there's skill involved. Oh, no. And I was not like that. That, that the level has come up as the industry has gotten more cred and 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 all sorts of other things have happened i i was not that you know yeah i was the one in the uh yeah so okay yeah. so how long did that last like you're 15 you're in new orleans like where are you living did you find an, an apartment or like what like this no seems... i didn't have any money you know i i slept in weird places i mean there's a whole world underneath the world that you and i mostly live in right and it's a world of endless that starts sort of the first layer under our feet might be couch surfing, you know, and the next layer underneath that is everybody's, you know, traveling in small packs uh, and some of them, you know, and they have dogs and some of them live on the street and some of them find out about apartments that have been vacated and some, you know what I mean? There's a kind of mo- constantly moving transients about where do you sleep. And the, th- the difference is when you and I think about it, I mean, I'm not trying to make assumptions about where you come from in any kind of economic social way, but when most people think about the question of like, oh, where do you sleep? We're thinking in general, like month to month, you know, as a system. When when I was in that world, where you sleep is a daily question. And so, you know, it's like, I didn't even think about it that much. I thought about it that day. So, Sometimes I had money for cheap hotels. Sometimes um, you do a lot, or I did a lot of day sleeping. You know, you you sleep on buses, you know, on buses or subways. Or you, uh, when I was hitchhiking around a lot, I slept while people drove. And so, you know, you get used to sleeping in these two-hour cycles, three-hour cycles. Or you know, a, you know, some poor schmuck who works at uh, Godfather's Pizza, you know, has an apartment and, you know, he's he's leaving and he knows it's going to be vacant for three weeks and somebody else has the key and, like, everybody piles in, right, you know? Right. There's all sorts of, like, creative stupidities out there. I was, I think the thing that made my experience kind of uh, unique in some ways uh, is that I didn't know any any other teenagers. I was not part of a crusty punk. Like if I could redo it, I know what I would do. I would I would have hit the squats. I would have hit the Hare Krishna feeds. I would have like hooked up with a bunch of the sort of like punk, either crusty punks or or whatever on the street, um, and that would have put me in a group of people with access to um, different kinds of resources. Uh, and uh, in some level, emotional community. Instead, you know, I was alone in a world passing for somebody, you know, 10 or 15 years older, and I was around a lot of times people who could not read um, and a much more volatile, scarier adult world than 
the Hare Krishna feed, crusty punk world. So you should you should consult I, on this. You should be a consultant. You know? I should be a consultant. <laughs> I don't know that I can claim that my way works very well. You know, I was. Um, I only spent, and this is something. When I think of like being on the street versus just being uh, a bad house guest, or you know, meeting like you know, or uh, or a, a late paying renter, like these are all stages. This is a hierarchy of you know, <laughs> hierarchy of issues here. Um, I was, you know, I moved up. I was only on the street in that way for a year, and then still I was sort of back in yeah. And then I was back and forth in a lot of weird situations that bounced from I'm staying a month at my mom's to I'm living these six months in a squat and there's no heat and it sucks to, uh, you know, oh, I mean, you know, one of the big things for me is I went to Europe. I hitchhiked about, in those years, I hitchhiked about 20,000 miles, um, a lot of it in circles, you know, um, and then because the country's not 20,000 miles big, but like if you go in circles a long time for enough time. You know, you start to rack it up. And then I went to Europe. I got a one-way ticket, and I went over there when I was 18. And that was a real transformation in my life. Uh, I came, I, I traveled around, I traveled around a lot in Turkey, in the former Yugoslavia. I played music, and I was living off my music. Uh, and that was just my guitar. Like just, uh, like street performing? Yeah. Um, I mean, until about five minutes ago, I basically have been a musician my whole life. I started writing pretty late. I mean, I wrote my whole life, kind of, but I didn't actually... I mean, I published my first story in five years ago, and it was the first one I wrote, you know? So yeah. um, I published a couple of things in nonfiction just for, like, Bust and Bitch and other things over the years, but, but really music was my main thing. So I was I was living as a musician most of the time. And in Europe, I... You know, I played on the street, and then I played in bars, and then I also had had my first band, and you know, it, it sort of discovered my first real art scene I was a part of, and my band did really well. We got to like open for like the Ramones, and uh, what, what was your band? I, what was your band? Oh no, it didn't do well in terms of anybody else's expectations. I just you wouldn't know it. It was a band called The Remnant. It was back in Europe. It was just that we, um, it did well in the sense that you know people were coming to our shows, and we were started to make records and we were touring with big bands and it was exciting and I was 19 by then. So, so um, okay, a couple questions, a couple questions that come to mind. Like, first of all, hitchhiking, uh, you know, yeah. like you hitchhike 20,000 miles and then you hitchhike all over Europe. Like, uh, did you ever have any really weird rides? Was it ever, uh, oh. <laughs> you must've had, some... I had a weird ride. I had a weird, well, see, you know, one out of 10 spectrum. I used to say, because I used to try to figure out statistics on this all the time years ago. I would say that for a long period of time, I had to get out of half to three-quarters of all my rides. Because? So, just... Because guys were going to try to rape me or bad shit was going to happen. It was so normal to deal with that that... It was just part of the cost of doing business. It was part of the time it took. I, when I would figure how fast I could hitchhike from one place to another, I was like, well, if you figure that a couple of the rides are going to be bad ones and I'm going to have to get out, and then I'll have to wait and put that time in. 
it's going to be this. Well, what, what, I mean, how do you um, get out of it? You're in the car and it's moving at 60 miles an hour. Like, what if some guy starts to get crazy? Well, yeah, he can't really do anything at 60 miles an hour. I mean, not much. Um, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't have a gun pulled on me. So that's a different situation. Yeah. Uh, I have had a gun pulled on me before in my life, but not in any of the rides. That, so, um, it was more, it's always more creepy than that. I and mean, it's almost always was, was, you know, businessmen. Uh, in fact, one of my, like, I had a kind of, when I was hitchhiking that much, I had all sorts of superstitions that I followed, you know, like a baseball player or anybody else. And one of them that came up was that I would not get in the car with anybody with manicured fingernails because the people who were the worst, the people who were the most dangerous, who were the grossest, who would try to put you in the most compromised positions, uh, were the guys in businesses who, you know, just felt like they owned everything. They were the worst. I never had trouble from, like, real trouble from anybody uh, in a car. And a trucker is a totally different kind of social set, but in a car outside of that kind of group. Wow, that's interesting. So, so yeah, well, there was just a sense that, like, well, if you were out here, you were asking for it. There's a, you know, it's a whole belief system built into what their world was. So you have to start to look at the belief system if you want to stay safe, right? You have to start to get instincts. You may not call it that, but you have to start to get instincts for that, you know, yeah. um, or you're, or you're going to get hurt. So, you know, I hitchhiked a lot. Um, I, I developed a whole sort of ritualistic way of approaching those rides in that period of time. And, and, you know, whether we call it, Whatever we call it, I think that's that's very normal when you're in a dangerous situation. Um, and, and part of it's just straight-up instinct, and part of it is learning to notice something, you know, like the manicured nails. I, I begin to go like, okay, that's the line in the sand. I don't, and when I don't you, do and, this. And when you're talking manicured nails, like, do you just mean like well-tended or do you mean like kind of long, gross nails? Like, do you know what I'm no, saying? No, no, no. I mean well-tended. Like really, like when they reach over to unlock the car, I would look at their hands. And, um, and I don't mean like a kind of like, you know, proletarian, like they did not have the workman's hands of Jean Valjean. I mean, like I would look at, you know, I would look at their hands, <laughs> you know, and if they were like really clipped, nice, you know, you could tell they'd been manicured and like, it just became a thing with me. Like I had to take serious consideration whether I would get in that car. Um, you know, the good news part of it is that whatever that system was, whether it was in my imagination or not, it worked. In all my years of hitchhiking, um, I never got raped, you know, and I never had sex with somebody in a ride, you know, uh, and I'm, you know, that was, uh, that took a lot of getting out of cars. So you ask, how do you get out of a car? So there's a bunch of different ways. The best one is that you get them to stop and let you out. Um, and you do that by scaring the hell out of them, uh, by, um, you know, any any number of means you can. You you try soft, you go harder, you know. I, I did get to a point at maybe the worst part of my hitchhiking where it was just I was living in a sort of dream of no sleep and in and, and, and constant difficulty with rides. I did get to a point where I would open a car door when it was moving and just say, I will jump. I will jump out of here. Somebody on this road is going to see it and you're going to have your, and if I die, it's freaking murder. And you're gonna have to explain it. And they would just, and and I was serious. The scary part is I was serious. The scary part isn't. I'm not a good enough liar. I had gotten to a point where I was like, "Yep, I will jump out of a moving car." 
Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. So, and, and, yeah, and, so, you're just, and you're just going from city to city and you'd show up for a few days and play right. some music or what would you do? I mean, are you... well, that's when I was, I mean, I played guitar for my own sanity all the time and I was learning, um, different things a lot, you know, uh, and that was sort of my normal teenage experience. Um, you know, you give a kid a guitar, they become obsessed with it and they play 14 hours a day. That was going on for me as well as the other things. I'd come into a city, come into it through truck stops. Usually I ended up doing more long haul trucks after a period of time. Um, and, you know, I'd try to find a shelter. And the problem with the sh- with like shelters or places like that is that a lot of times you have to show ID. And of course, I can't show ID. I'm underage. So um, a lot of the resources that are there to help people who are homeless are not accessible to people who are teenagers. Um, and that's a real dilemma. Uh, and is to this day. So, you know, I truckers bought me food. I went to food banks sometimes. You know, when you're living in that world, there's kind of a constant word on the street about, like, where you can go and what you can do and who throws out what dumpster food when. And I remember one of my big, like, I'm a genius moments was, like, and I really wasn't a genius, was I was in Sacramento, California, and this kid had taken me to this place where, like, I don't know if it was McDonald's or something. They threw, he said, every night at 10, they throw out all this stuff, and, you know, you can get it fast. It's not, you know, get out of the garbage fast. It's good. And... And I just remember looking at it, I'm like, I don't want to dig through that goddamn dumpster. You know? <laughs> looking at it, you know, five minutes to ten, I, like, opened the door in the back. I'm like, can I have the food? <laughs> you know? And they handed it to me, because I didn't give a shit back to Amazon. They were working for $3 an hour or whatever right. in hell, you know? Right. <laughs> I was like, you know, well, it's ACM carrying it to the trash, you know? <laughs> like, as long as it goes out the back door, they don't, they can say they officially didn't do it. So I was just like, can I have all that stuff? They're like, yeah, here, take it. You want more? Go ahead and take this, too. So, right. you know, I was always trying to improve my standards. <laughs> but, yeah. Wow. And so then anyway. uh, another question that popped into my head uh, earlier when you were talking about being in Europe and kind of touring with all these bands, like, do you have any great, like, music memories? Like, you're with the Ramones. Like, did you actually hang out with these guys? Or was it, uh, I mean, you must have, right? You spent some time with them. Well, I only did a few stops at the Ramones, um, you know, <laughs> and I do have memories of it. Uh, they were strange. I They were fun. I mean, I have a lot of good music memories, Um throughout my, I mean, I was an indie touring, hardworking, you know, musician for years and years. Um, but at this point, in terms of the Ramones, what I remember most was, uh, first of all, it's Austria, which means, you know, there are going to be 10,000 people there to see the Ramones in 1990, where the Ramones probably could have gotten a thousand people in New York in 1990, you know, the sort of Ramones revitalization happened a little later. Um, but, you know, there's tons and tons of people. And I actually, at that time, did not listen and did not know the Ramones. And this is because I, I listened to, to Delta Blues, and I had just gotten into David Bowie because I'm like a late bloomer, uh, this, and Brian Eno. And what else was I listening to? You know, I was listening to a lot of, like, Sun House and, and stuff like that. And, um and, you know, one of the things about not really going to a high school and not being around people my own age is I had no social group uh, for periods, long periods of time that was connected to music or anything. So the um, <laughs> I didn't know what the hormones really sounded like. I'd heard a little bit and I was kind of unimpressed. I've grown to really like them and enjoy them, and I teach them a lot when I teach guitar to kids. But um, 
you know, at that time, I was just listening, I was listening to other things, you know, they sounded like pop rock to me. And so, uh, when the reason we got on the tour was I had this bass player who was a super groupie and she was, she was a super groupie. She came to us, our band was doing really well. We were supposed to go on tour and she came to us with a list of dates that she could not tour and that they've comprised almost everything for the next four months because she was going to go on tour to follow the cure, follow the Ramones, follow the, you know what I mean? Like she was going to go be a groupie Mm -hmm. for all these bands and hit like 20 dates each. And I was just like, I couldn't understand how anybody would rather be a fucking groupie than go out on tour with their own band that nobody wanted to see. Like, why? (laughs) What's wrong with you? So, uh, and and I know now what the answer to that is. Is like you have to be a songwriter to want to do that. <laughs> if you're just playing bass, then you got a smarter plan. Right. If you had a smarter plan, which was she was going to go have fun, <laughs> as opposed to like work really hard and like, feel like, lonely, like schlepping gear around and all that. Yeah, she was going to go have fun. So I thought we had a manager at the time, and I talked to her, and I was like, "We got to get on one of these tours." Otherwise, I would have abandoned tour. She got us on the Ramones for a section of the Ramones tour. So then my bass player comes up to me and says, tells me I have to go get her bass signed because she's too chicken and nervous. And I'm like, now I not only have to have the groupie in my band, and I have to face my inner groupie. <laughs> I have to go and ask somebody. I've never asked anybody for an autograph in my life. I'm far too proud for this kind of behavior. I don't have to go to a band that I've kind of disdain at this point and ask them for an autograph on her base and pretend like it's not me. And, you know, it's just funny. So we did our show and they, they were like, hey, why don't you come on some more stops with us? Like, okay. So the next day was Thanksgiving, which is meaningless in Europe. And so the problem is we didn't have enough money to do any of this. So we went, um, we only had enough gas money to get to the next show, but we didn't have money to eat. And the only thing we had, we had enough for like a drink each, and I think that's where it went. Um, so by, that sounded fine at the time, but, you know, 15 hours into it, we're fucking starving. And they have alcohol at the show that they've given us. We have a little room, and they, we drunk all the beer. Now we're drunk and starving. <laughs> um, and the Ramones are traveling with a huge semi and a private chef and 25 people and their crew. So they make a big American Thanksgiving like huge fucking American Thanksgiving and we're sitting there watching them eat it because we can't they assumed like same people I'm sure that like duh if they wanted to play you know if we wanted to play we should come get in line but you know we hadn't felt invited so we were just like haunting this thing I remember trying to take something out of the trash and it was one of those things where again my pride I could not bring myself to go ask them for a plate of food I mean, I just was so appalled at the idea so that we were just fucking starving and we're just trying to like sit there with the big eyes, hope that somebody would go, oh, that poor kitty out on the porch. I wonder if it wants some milk, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So instead, I don't know why, I went and stole the bottle of their vodka out of their locker and we left them a note um, because, you know, I wanted to be fair about the fact that I was stealing their alcohol, but, you know, I went and stole vodka out of the locker. Why was it okay to go steal vodka out of their locker, but not to like say, Hey, can, uh, can we get in on, can we get a point? (laughs) I don't know, but you're just working with all these kind of like teenage rules of what's okay and what's not. That make no sense. It's more, that's more rock. It's more rock and roll to steal a bottle of vodka. It's of course, it's sort of lame to be like, can I have some mashed potatoes? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 
exactly. However, you know, in retrospect, it's not more lame. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the thing. But it was that teenage kind of like teenage cool, you know. So, so that was, and I just the only other thing I remember about that tour is I lost my voice on one section of it, which had never happened to me. And Joey Ramone let me use his humidifier and, and went on at length about how I should be drinking green juice. So. Wow. Okay. He was like a tall, white, pale, soft isosceles triangle. I was going to say. I was going to say these guys never seemed like the like uh, they were into the health stuff, but I mean, you know, but they never looked entirely, yeah, well, he, entirely healthy. No, I think he already probably was starting to have bouts of cancer at oh. that point. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So. Well, well but so anyway, how, how long were you in Europe for? Like, just you know, in terms of the time span, like how, how long did you live over there? I was in Europe. In and out a little bit, but mostly in Europe from '87 to uh, beginning of '91. Oh wow! And so, what so are three your, years. What are your parents? Uh, what are your parents thinking of this? Are you in touch with them throughout this period, or are you just kind of like whatever? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm in touch with them. Um, you know, I'm not really. I mean, I, I got back after about the first year of being gone. I was back in full contact with my family, um, but I never really lived there. I, you know, I never really, it never came back to this, like, hey, where are you going? Kind of thing. It was, uh, that, that glass was broken, you know. Right. Um, so I wasn't really in the, in the household and answering to anybody. Um, you know, so I would just would send postcards and talk on the phone and visit when I came back and, you know, those kind of things. Uh, and I then, mean, they helped me at different times. They did. You know, okay. I mean, just like, just in terms of like, you know, what set you off, like in your teenage years and, you know, what sent you on this path? Like, do you feel like it was just kind of like a personality thing and you're just an adolescent and you just had a wild streak or like, can you, can you point to something or some sort of relationship that you felt like? <laughs> Cause I mean, it's an, it's an unusual road. I mean, to, at, at that, at that age um, to be that, yeah. ba- that ballsy or, or, you know, some would say, I guess, reckless maybe in some senses, but I mean, just to have that yeah. kind of, yeah, you could say reckless. Yeah. But you also, I mean, you also have to have, I mean, you can be reckless, but you also seem to have had, um, some, some degree of street smarts and survival skills. Like I, you know, I, I think of myself at that age, I don't think I would have been able to, to hack it for like a week, let alone a year. And then going over to Europe when I was, you know, when you were 18, like, I don't know. I'm just, well, trying, can you trace it? Do you, do you see what, what it was? Yeah. I mean, I can, you? I think some of it was that I never, uh, I mean, I was in many ways raised consciously or unconsciously to be, a, you know, raised to act like an adult from a very early age. And that, um, it never even occurred to me. There are things that other people said, well, wouldn't you have asked for this? Or wouldn't you? I mean, it never even occurred to me. Mm. Um, I, you know, I just kind of, the culture of the household and the way it was, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, we had, we had family strife. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, I would say my personality it has a lot to do with things like that, um, you know, with the strife, but also really more so that, um, I have never felt like, I have never thought of myself, ever thought of myself as a rebel. <laughs> you know, I have, my experience is that um, the times when people have thought I was trying to act as a rebel, <laughs> um, I was just acting as I did, and it was causing a reaction that was often confusing to me. Um, I, 
I'm not somebody who just does the opposite of whatever somebody says, you know, because they said it. Um, I, I, I'm a little bit authority blind. Um, I often don't recognize when somebody, when I have upset somebody by not recognizing their authority because I did not recognize it. And it's assumed that I'm actually flouting it and I'm actually just didn't see it. Um, and that's, so there was a lot of just complexity in how I interacted with the adult world where in some ways when I left, I didn't even feel like it was that big a decision. And in other ways, it was a huge decision. So, you know, I mean, it was, it was a mix. Um, you know, so some of my personality wasn't like, you know, I just ran out and lived wildly. I mean, it, my life was a, was a curve of, um, you know, constantly, constantly seeking meaning um, in whatever form, uh, and that goes on to this day. So it wasn't like, oh, I went out and had some rebellious years, and then that, you know, I kind of got that out of my system. It was just all part of one curve to me, and is. Well, um, so then you get so, back. But how it looks to different people at different times, I sometimes don't, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I don't even think of myself as a rebel, you know, and, and yet that often gets sort of put on me. And I don't, I know I'm a coward. So when people say, well, it sounds kind of bold and brave, like bold, maybe brave. No, I'm a coward. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I mean, just on paper, you know, on paper, you read it and you go, oh, wow, right. this person's, uh, you know, uh, I, I can sure. see where the, the label rebel might seem applicable, but, um, right. when, you, when you get back, just to make sure we, we at least cover, uh, to some extent, the, the, the full bio, like you get back from Europe and then you worked as a musician for, you know, your twenties, your third. I mean, how long did that, how long has that gone on? I'm assuming you're still doing some of that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I played music, uh, I went to Alaska. The first thing I did when I came back to the States was go to Alaska to give up music. Cause I felt like music was clearly the thing that had ruined my life. Um, and so I spent some time up in Alaska failing to give up music and then, uh, ended up in Seattle in the early nineties, which, Wait, where in Alaska were you? Where in Alaska? Juneau. Okay. I was up in Juneau. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just, uh, I ended, then I came down to Seattle and it was like Seattle in the early 90s. Well, that was like this kind of existential hell of flannel. Um, <laughs> and it was just like, I met more A&R reps the day I came to town who wanted to know about me and really cared <laughs> than I ever did in 20 years before or after music. It was like, uh, you know, I, I came into town on like the eve of the apocalypse. It was the Candlebox release party. And I was just like, who are these people? What is this? Why am I here? And it was just an insane time to be there and a very hard time to be a musician in that town. Um, so many bands were just, there were so many bands, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of bands, and so many of them were just, you know, trampled uh, in this sort of stampede of whatever was going on. Um, but, you know, I, I was there, I made records, I played with a band called Bell, and uh, we toured a bunch. And uh, then I also played uh, in a band called The Pinkos with a guy named Steve Moriarty who was in The Gits. Uh, and he and I still occasionally play together. Um, and I have a uh, fun, gothy, trashy, love and rocket style, count on tail style band 
that I'm in called Night Bright to this day. Um, and then I, you know, I also play acoustic. I've been an old time band to play. I mean, I play a lot of. Can you sing? Different styles. Yes, I do. Oh, you do. Okay. So, do you have a, yeah. you have like a really good voice? <laughs> I don't know that I could say that. I have, uh, you know, I have a lot of character in my voice. I, they're amazing. I have a friend, Julie Holland, who's a remarkable singer. And oh, yeah, so, I when her. I think about, I know her. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah she's amazing. Julie's great. <laughs> and um, you know, I got a sung background for Julie on a couple things with my boyfriend, uh, who's an old friend of hers, and she's covered several of his songs over the years and written about him. And good, just she's a good friend. So, <clears throat> you know, in the rock, like scuzzy rock scene, there would be drunk people who go, "Man, you have such a great voice," and then I hear that, and I'm like, "That's right." I think about Julie, and I'm like, "No, I don't." I don't have such a good voice. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, like, there's different ways to grade that out. Like if it's, I know if that. It's, I know if that. It suits your, if it suits your music and it's, you know, a lot of like a lot of like, you know, a lot of my favorite singers can't really sing. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, I know. I know. There's all sorts of things for, for stylizing and voicing. And, and I'm being a little flip about it, but I don't know how I feel about my voice right now. Uh, at one point, it was the thing that people seem to be most attached to in terms of my music. However, I was probably most attached to songwriting and guitar. Um, but you know, I sing, and uh, and then you decided, and, and then you decided to write. Uh, you decided to write a novel, like just out of nowhere, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had I started writing a couple of short stories, and I kind of always thought I would write a novel um, that was probably a thinly veiled Tilden's Roman about my time traveling around as a teenager, and uh, and then I realized I didn't care, <laughs> so and that I never really wanted to write about myself, and which brings us back to. Well, let me see. Okay, so I, I just realized I, I, I really didn't want to write about myself. Um, and when I started writing Zazen, it just kind of took over my life. Uh, and while I used stuff from all over my life and everything I could find, you know, I used as material to throw in, it is not autobiographical. It was not, um, you know, it really it really was fiction. And, uh, and that was completely, completely narcotic to me. I got totally hooked on it. Um, and uh, I also found that it just was the right natural move. I'm also a mother, and, you know, I was probably, Violet was probably about three years old, four years old when I started writing Thousand. And, uh, you know, it took over my life in a lot of ways, but not the way that, like, having to find childcare and go on tour does. You know, I could still, um, I could still be a parent. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I love it. Uh, I love writing. So then Zazen came out in June. And it's, I mean, by my standards, again, I may just have low standards. It's done great. I'm so thrilled with how it's been, you know, how people have responded to it. Um, you know, it's hard to put a book out, and Richard did a great job with it. Um, Talking Richard Nash. And, yes, Richard Nash. And, um, you know, I have, I have no complaints whatsoever. I've met all sorts of wonderful writers and, and been introduced to really a new world. Um, <clears throat> so... You know, I've published four or five short stories, and I've written and I've published Zazen. And so, the Atlantic piece was a really strange move for me in some ways because I ha I really don't like writing about myself. <laughs> I get very uncomfortable with it. And uh, why? Do you have a sense of why? Um, yes, I do. I'm actually pretty clear on why. Um, I think that. I think that the tendency to become, okay, so 
I have had so far the kind of life that on print looks very grand, right, in certain ways. Like there looks like there's lots of material to write about, right? Well, sometimes material's a curse. Sometimes material to write about is just, it's too much and it doesn't get to the point anyway, and who cares? You know, I mean, you're either going to write a sort of Perils of Pauline thing or you're going to try to get to something deeper, and I don't know if either is worth it. I, I kind of feel like, <clears throat> like the tendency to just make things anecdotal and to reduce them um, it's so strong, and and I don't really want to be. You know, okay, I, I try to explain this. The difference between uh, being uh, totally self-obsessed and, and and self-interested and selfish, and being a narcissist. Um, I'm self-obsessed, self-interested, and selfish, but I'm not a narcissist. And the difference is this. I'm really, really interested in what I'm interested in, but I'm not interested in the fact that I'm interested in it. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, but that makes like sense. There's, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about the idea of me writing memoir or, or things like that is like, I'm not interested in my, you know what I mean? Like, I'm interested in what I'm interested in. I'm a bull and I can be like, uh, you know, take up too much space in a room and all sorts of stuff. But I'm not interested in me being interested. I'm not interested in writing my memoir. I was there, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't have, and so it also just makes me feel creepy. So that's that's the short version. I well, yeah, and it's hard. To, it's also it's also for me like I I kind of tested those waters a little bit, and I just found that like it, it's it's all fiction anyway. It's, I have such a bad memory, like I don't even know what I'm like how much of what I'm saying is even true, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, it's it's all. Uh, it, I I guess I'm just yeah. I don't have any. I don't feel any need to divulge. You know, which is funny in that, like, criticisms have been made because I have this bio that, like, divulges, right? The context of that bio coming up was not me trying to divulge. It was actually me saying, fuck you, to something um, very, very specific in the time that then just got stuck and I didn't change it. And then it was like, uh, which was, you know, I had been trying to write for a grant application and then I'd been putting in job resumes. And I just felt like every time I filled one of those things out or wrote up a page like that, it never expressed what I really did or had any experience with. It is, you know, it was always like this this horrid human resources language of like that looked like nothing but like what did you do for five years here, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. um, and I just was totally I wasn't getting any work and I wasn't getting any of the grants and I was getting totally pissed off and so I sat down and I wrote what I called my real resume. There's like two pages of C V, two pages of like, you know, Working as a teen stripper, I learned how to, you know, and, and like really, really in depth, you know, like, you know, I wrote down like the skills I developed while I was selling flowers on the LA freeway were to really recognize which gangs were coming from which directions and try to be, uh, you know, look for a solution to the situation. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I, I just, I sat down and I wrote like, this is my real experience. And it was actually really helpful and healing because I looked at it and I went, Yes, I've lived a life. There is experience here, you know? Yeah, no it's doubt. not just the holes that I see on resumes when I try to say I've done this, you know, and apply for another entry-level position somewhere, you know? Um, and so, you know, I did that. And so right about that time, Arthur Magazine, which was online at that point, Jay Babcock, had seen through a friend an early version of Zazen, and he loved it. And he said, look, we want to serialize it. And uh, I said, okay. <laughs> he said, give me a bio. And I said, I got just one for you. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, sent him, I sent him that, which is my bio, right? 
Well, and then once, you know, Richard picked me up and I did, you know, all this other stuff, you know, cut to a year later and Richard has that bio in the book and I was like, it just felt, then I felt like this is that teenage pride. Then I felt like a pussy for pulling it out. I was like, well, now I'm going to pull it out. I'm just pulling it out because somebody else was going to make fun of me for this. And sure enough, you know, that's happened. But, uh, yeah, so it's not the bio, I think. Uh, like my Atlantic bio that went up did not say all that stuff. <laughs> you know, of course right. they don't print anything that doesn't, but that's fine. I don't care. I wasn't, you know. So I would go, well, do I just take out the sex worker part and then I feel like a real pussy? I'm like, well, that's totally cowardly. <laughs> you know, I, I go back and forth. I'm like, what should be in the damn bio? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, it's like, it's uh, kind of like query letters. Like writing the bio is never. That's never easy either. It's all. Yeah. It's all the same. Well, piece. and you know. The whole bio thing in the beginning was real simple. It's like, look, you're trying to sell books. And I'll tell you, when I go into a bookstore and I pick up a book, boy, are people going to hate me for saying this. Let me think. Okay. I mean this with respect. <laughs> I don't mean this as a sort of typical slam. But just honestly, when I pick up a book, I know it can get kind of annoying to have bios that are like, you know, uh, there was an article done in the millions uh, by Eden LaPucky about, I'm probably saying her name wrong, about whether a bio should contain just writers, inf- writing, publishing information, or whether it should contain their life. And she used my bio as an example. Um, and and her, her, her point was that, and I think she handled the story really well, but her point was kind of like, that her problem with people who use their life as a bio is that she felt that it didn't... Uh, she felt like they maybe didn't take their writing as seriously as she had. Well, that sent off a huge blur for me when I first read it. I'm like, how seriously do you have to take your writing to be sitting on your ass in an Iowa workshop fully funded rather than like working two jobs on food stamps with your two-year-old writing in between breaks? Like, who takes their writing more seriously? You know, to me, it just seemed really a kind of strange dichotomy on that sort of MFA world. Well, and it's just, I mean, um, it's just, the thing is, is that I mean, there's just, there's a, I don't know. It seems like splitting. There's a whole thing there. So well, that's your life. I mean, it's like, it's your life and it's your bio right. and it's like a paragraph on the back of the book. And at the end of the right. day, who, I don't, who cares? I mean, I could say I have a dog and live in New York with my husband, but you know, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> so, right. I mean, there is room and bios have often, author bios often say, you know, she, they read like bad personal labs, you know, but, you know, like you know, when she's not writing, she likes to walk with her dog and eat dinner with her husband in the park, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, they have that potential. But I guess to me, when I'm in a bookstore and I pick up a book and I flip it over and it says, so-and-so got her MFA from, she's been published in Plowshares and da 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 I tend to put it back. And I know that sounds awful. Um Actually, I shouldn't say that. I read the first two pages. Right. And, no, but I get it. And, it just seems like it's, it's just because I think but most, it feels most books, like, most books, and most writers, that's the bio. You know, like. Well, it feels like literary fiction. I mean, I am somebody who feels like literary fiction has become kind of a genre. You know, and it feels like when I pick up a book like that, I'm not even sure I'm going to hear the writer as much as hear the workshop. And. That's why I read the first two pages, because if I feel like if I do, um, then that's great. And I have, you know, I have lots of friends who've gone to work. I have lots of friends who have MFAs and who had amazing experiences with them. And and I 
I'm not saying that I would not read the books because they went because I don't mean it that way. But what I mean is, it's kind of a, a neutral point for me. Like I see it, it doesn't it doesn't move me to take that book. Right. You know, yeah. and that's similarly, your, that's your, I would that's say your somebody, prerogative. That's your prerogative as a reader. You yeah. know, like well, and somebody else who says, you know, I've been an acrobat, I've been this, and I've been that, and that doesn't necessarily move me to take the book either. So I'm not I'm not really sure what you know. What it does, but, you know, I mean, I'm a slave to cover design. I'm a sucker for the first three pages. Um, and then there's whatever my mood is when I walk in the store. Sure. You know, but I, do, I don't, I think that the anxiety from the MFA world about people putting their real lives on the bio is just bizarre. Um, I just, that, I just know, wish I had something for my real life to put on there. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like my real life, it's like, you know. He sits in front of his computer a lot, and you know, I just right. I need to right. do I need to do some shit. That's a constant, like you know, anxiety for me is that I'm not like actually living enough, you know. Right, right, and you know, I mean, I think for me, it's like you know, my bio will naturally move more and more towards you know publishing. I mean, I don't. I, I had a long list of publishing before Zazie came out, but I didn't. You know, nobody needs a laundry list, and I don't need a laundry list, and I felt like a lot of it was old, and I just didn't really want to contend with it. You know, the Atlantic will be on it now. Yeah, I guarantee right. you. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, that's good. Well, um, hey, you know, it's been, uh, it's been wonderful talking with you. It's a, you, I could talk with you for forever. There's so much to discuss, but, uh, you know, congrats so, uh, on the, on the Atlantic piece and then congrats on the success of Zazen and, uh, you know, be, I'm, I'm assuming you're working on another book or that's eventually going to yes. come. Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. I'm working on, I uh, started uh, <clears throat> a draft of a second novel, and then I began a third one, and I was deciding for a while which way I was going to go, but I, I now know, so <laughs> wow. Wow. I am working. Well, cool. Well, uh, I wish you the best of luck with it, and we'll be interested to see uh, you know, what it is when it, uh, when it emerges. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the interview and for the Nobby and <laughs> um, all of it. I uh, appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right, everybody, there you have it. That's Vanessa Veselka for the hour. You can find her online at vanessaveselka.wordpress.com. Veselka is spelled V-E-S-E-L-K-A. That's vanessaveselka.wordpress.com. She's on the Twitter as well. Her handle is at Vanessa Veselka, and she has a Facebook presence too. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. Go and follow it. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me for some reason, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Be sure to follow the Nervous Breakdown on the Twitter. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. The handle on Twitter is at TNBTweets. And uh, if you're feeling generous and you want to do something to help the show, if you really like the program, if you get something out of it and you want to see it continue to flourish, uh, I ask that you please consider joining the TNB Book Club. And here's how it works. For only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Uh, the titles are selected by uh, our executive editor, Jonathan Evison, and myself. Uh, to join the Nervous Breakdown uh, book club, just go to the nervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. It's very easy, uh, and I would certainly appreciate it. And better yet, uh, I will, you know, I interview all of the book club authors on this program so you can read the book and then uh, hear me talk to them at length. So there's that. Uh, other closing thoughts on uh, Zazen, uh, you know, uh, and I'm talking about the, the meditation thing. Uh, you know, I think the big misconception that people have with it, uh, with the whole seated meditation thing, is that uh, a lot of people, I think, 
believe that they're doing it wrong if they think, you know? I think people, uh, they go into it expecting oblivion and, uh, you know, they, they expect their head to just kind of shut off. And when it doesn't, they feel like it's not working or, or that they made some kind of mistake, which, uh, which of course isn't true. Uh, no one's head shuts off, which is sort of the whole point. And, uh, you know, maybe someone who's, who's like tremendously skilled can quiet it down, uh, for a spell. Like maybe, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche can do that. Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, but anyway, the point isn't to go brain dead. It is in, uh, it is instead, I think to, uh, to watch the chaos, to bear witness to the chaos and become aware of it and to, uh, to not react to it and to realize, uh, that you are not your mind. Uh, you are not your mind. I am not my mind. So uh, let's listen uh, to some more flatulence uh, sound effects, shall we? Here goes. Okay, so uh, there you have it, everybody. That right there uh, is uncalled for. That is some high-quality entertainment, which, of course, I'm committed to bringing you week in and week out. That is uh, that is my mission, and I intend to fulfill it. I hope you enjoyed the program. I hope you enjoyed the Zazen that we shared together earlier. I hope it was special for you. And uh, if anyone asks you what you did today, tell them that you heard the voice of God. I will be back again soon with more thoughts and conversations and sound effects. Until then, please remember to take some time to sit perfectly still and do absolutely nothing in total silence. Go on a vision quest. Go to the desert if you can. Experience the profound silence of nature and weep in solitude when a bald eagle screams across the empty sky.